0: Up your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We'll be looking at the final section of that chapter. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 35 to 41. Verses 35 to 41. Hear now the Word of God. Mark, wait, what did I say? I apologize. Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. All right, hear now the word of God. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace The flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. O most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful for your word. And we are thankful that you have so graciously revealed yourself to us in the inspired and narrant words of Scripture. And we are thankful that we have the opportunity this Lord's Day to open it up, to study together, to learn more about you and what you have done and more about Jesus Christ. Lord, be with us this day and send your Spirit to us, for we, your servants, are listening. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, When I was young, uh, I I would often watch a great deal of classic TV shows. On a channel called TV Land. It would play reruns of old TV shows through the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And I would watch these shows all throughout my childhood, and I would have some favorites. I grew up watching Gilligan's Island, The A-Team. My personal favorite was 1960s Batman starring Adam West. But one of my other favorites was a smaller one that you probably still have heard of. It's called The Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger, particularly the old version starring Clayton Moore. That was one of my favorites. And that show follows the lone survivor of a massacre of Texas rangers who dons a mask and then proceeds to gallivant around the entire Wild West, righting wrongs wherever he goes, along with his faithful Indian sidekick, Tonto. It's really quite an excellent show. I I very much commend it to you. But all of those shows, all those episodes, follow the same pattern. Lone Ranger comes across some injustice, he writes the wrong, and then at the very end of the episode, it always ends the same way. He's riding off into the sunset, and all the pounds people look to each other. They ask themselves, who is that masked man? That's the question that follows the Lone Ranger wherever he goes. And today we have a very similar question confronting us in the gospel of Mark. It's the question that uh, the disciples are left asking themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, that question, that question about who Jesus is, lies at the very center of Mark's gospel. He asks it over and over and over again, and he tries to see who has the right answer. Curiously, people have the answer in chapter 1. The people who know who Jesus is are actually the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. They look at Him, they take one look at Him, and they say this, You are the Holy One of God. And do you remember what Jesus does? He tells them, Stop. Don't say another word. I don't want you to tell anyone who I am. He wants everyone who meets him to wrestle with that question, who is this? And in chapter 2, you find that question asked in some way three separate times. You know, Who are you to forgive sins? Who are you to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Who are you to let your disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath? And then in chapter 3, you actually have people, they try to answer the question. Everyone seems to have an answer. The Pharisees are completely convinced they know who Jesus is. They believe they understand who he is. They say that he is possessed by the Elzebub prince of demons. That's who they think Jesus is. But nothing could be further from the truth. A little later in the chapter, Jesus' mother and brother's are convinced they know who he is. They say, that is my son, that is my brother, and he needs to stop acting so high and mighty. And he needs to come on down where we are. And the curious thing is, they're actually wrong too. It's not so much that they're wrong as that they're not giving the full answer. There's something deeper here. And now this question has weaved its way all the way through the Gospel of Mark, and now it's right here on the disciples' lips. Who is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him. And this is a question that's not just for the disciples. It's for us as well. This is not an idle theological question. This is not how many angels can you fit on the head of a pen. This is a very important question. It's so important that Mark is willing to make this the center of his entire gospel. And he's willing to make it the center of his gospel. Because he knows it's the center of the gospel. You have to understand who Jesus is. And if the gospel hangs on that question, I want you to think for a moment, everything good about the Christian life, every blessing you have ever experienced from the hands of God, every practical application you have ever heard in a sermon that you hold dear, all of that rests upon who Jesus Christ is at well. You have to wrestle with that question and you need an answer to who Jesus is. And today I want us to answer that question and I want us to see how answering it makes all the difference in the way we live our Christian lives. That's what I want us to do today. And the first thing, we're going to have three points. The first point I want you to understand here today is that Jesus is the God-man. Jesus is the God-man. And what do I mean by that? I mean that He is fully God and He is fully man. He is both. He is both God and man at the same time. And the disciples understood part of this. They understood that Jesus was fully human. You know, they understood that Jesus is not like the Lone Ranger. He's not someone who just puts on a mask. The mask of humanity and then gallivants around and he can just remove that mask whenever he wants. They understood Jesus as a real human body. With a real human soul. Now I want you to think back to that old hymn. That great hymn. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. I love that line. I love that hymn. But there's more there. That's not just that word veil. Don't make it think, don't think about how Christ can just put on a veil and then take it off. Jesus Christ takes on flesh and he unites it to who he is. He becomes human and he becomes flesh from life till death. And then he actually rises again from the dead and he takes on flesh from now till the end of time. He is still human at the right hand of God the Father. The disciples understood this. Because when they followed Jesus around, wherever he went, they saw someone with a body, someone with the same struggles that they did. Look at what Jesus is doing here in this passage. You know, he's at the end of the evening. He says, let us go across to the other side. Why is that? It's because he has just spent an entire day teaching a giant crowd in the very same boat. And he's been pouring himself out in ministry And at the end of the day, he is absolutely exhausted and he wants to get away from the crowd. He's trying to get some peace and quiet. And so he heads to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. He understood the need for sleep. He understood the need to eat and to drink. He pours himself out in ministry all throughout his life to the point of absolute exhaustion with this crowd demanding his constant attention, constant entertainment. And he just wants peace and quiet. Jesus really needs sleep, and that's why he's asleep in this boat. Don't overlook that very simple line Jesus Christ, God in flesh, is asleep in the stern of a boat. He's not faking. You know, it's not that Jesus actually had one eye open the entire time he was sleeping you know he actually needed sleep he is fully asleep in that boat he is so exhausted that the the wind is b- b- coming up the waves are sloshing into the boat the rain's pouring down and he doesn't wake up he is that exhausted he is so exhausted that he is absolutely dead asleep even though there's yelling and screaming all around him christian you have a savior is able to sympathize with that feeling of absolute exhaustion when you roll into bed later tonight or any night this week when you just fall flat asleep and you wake up tired Jesus understands that feeling because he is fully man we have a savior who is a human he is truly man but he's also fully divine He's fully human, but he's also fully divine. And we see that in this passage, in the way that he performs this miracle. You know, I want you to understand something. The disciples were not so much wowed by the fact that Jesus did a miracle as how he did the miracle. You know, what do I mean by that? The disciples believed miracles were possible. The disciples were good Jewish boys who had been raised on their mosaic shorter catechisms from birth. And they understood miracles are possible. And they have seen miracles. They have seen Jesus perform miracles time and time again. But when they see Jesus perform a miracle, they just say, that's like an Old Testament prophet. I know what category to put that in. That's an Old Testament prophet miracle there. They even wake Jesus up expecting a miracle. Why do they wake their teacher You know who's sleeping in a boat? Why aren't they trying to save the boat? Does Jesus really actually matter? There's like a dozen of them in the boat. Why is one extra person being up and around matter? They're expecting some sort of miracle. But they're completely unprepared for what Jesus does and the way he does it. They're unprepared for the scale of what Jesus does. Because what does Jesus do? He merely speaks and he silences the wind and with his own voice he stilled the sea and with that the disciples realize something they have just watched a miniature reenactment of genesis 1 every single one of them there that day in that boat understood that creation had just responded to the voice of its maker that only Someone who had created all things, created the winds and the sea, could possibly have spoken with such authority and such power. It is only God who speaks in the Old Testament and then things happen. That is a sign of God. It is God who speaks and then creation just follows. No one in that boat that day could have confused Jesus with Elijah. All of them would have understood something greater than Elijah is here. There is someone greater. Who is this? And the answer, it is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Now, I want you to notice something else here. The disciples probably didn't realize this immediately, but Jesus is actually showing his divinity in the storm before he even wakes up. You know, we believe and confess as Christians that the same man asleep in the boat that day was simultaneously very God of very God. And he was upholding and directing all things even while he was asleep by, as the, the very word of God and by the power, as, a, as the power of God. And so if I can put it this way, does God direct all things? The answer is yes. And so Jesus was directing the storm. Even while He's asleep in His humanity, He is watching over His disciples in His divinity. He is right there. He is the one who stirred up the storm and He is the one who calmed it. Everything is controlled by Jesus Christ. All things. Creation itself. We get to see here the weakness of Christ and the power of Christ so close to each other indeed overlapping and we get to see who Jesus is. And that's a wonderful thing for for us to see here today because we get to understand more about our Savior, more about our great high priest and who he is. That's the first point I want you to understand. Jesus is the God man. The second point, Jesus cares for us. The disciples they wake up Jesus and they ask him this question, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I want you to take a moment. I want you to think about that question for a moment. Sinclair Ferguson has pointed out that is a rather startling question. There is no question that the disciples could have asked that is probably more cutting than that question. Just asking Jesus, Do you care? Because the entire reason he's in the boat is because he cares. That's the reason He took on flesh in the first place. It's the reason He came to earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, heaven itself could not contain His glory, but He took on flesh so that He be contained in a child's body, in a cattle stall. He humbled Himself and took on flesh. He cared, and that's the entire reason He had spent this entire day preaching Pouring himself out in ministry, desiring to help this crowd. It's the reason he was so asleep that the storm couldn't wake him. It's because he had poured himself out. And it's the reason why he went through all these humiliations, knowing all the while that he was going forward to the ultimate humiliation. That he, the Lord of life, would be crucified. For these disciples who just asked him, do you care that we are perishing? You see, what, what do we understand? We understand that there was no person on earth who understood just how much the disciples were perishing than Jesus that day. He understood they were perishing far more than they did. They just saw waves. Jesus saw the waves, but he saw something greater. He saw their spiritual condition. That They were in need of a Savior. They were under the wrath and curse of God, and they needed a true Savior and a sacrifice for their sins. You know, There's a short essay uh, by the famous theologian B.B. B. Warfield. It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord. If you want a really good Lord's Day uh, today, go print that off online and read that. It's an incredible study. Because what he does is he takes every single reference to the emotions of Jesus in all the Gospels, and he analyzes them. And he finds, what is the number one emotion that you see in the Gospels that Jesus has? It's compassion. It's compassion that's built on and overlaps with love. That's what Jesus is constantly feeling everywhere he goes. There are even signs that he has compassion even for it. The Pharisees, those he speaks most harshly against, even his harsh words come from this desire for compassion. This is a compassion. It doesn't overlook the fact that they're sinners. It's the entire reason he has compassion on them in the first place. He sees that they're sinners and he wants to do something about it. The answer to the disciples' question is obvious. Jesus does care. And not only does he care, he is the one who cares most in the entire world. He cared for them even while he was asleep, while he was watching over them in his divinity. Jesus cares for his disciples. But if I can take that question and I kind of sharpen it. Do you care? We know that Jesus cares for the disciples. If I can sharpen it a little further. Christian, how do you know that he cares for you? Because that's an important question for you to think about. Because you need to have a firm foundation to be confident that Jesus cares for you. Something to hold on to when all the visible blessings of this world, when they sink beneath the waves, what do you hold on to when the storm is raging? You need something. You need something when you inevitably pray the same prayer these disciples were saying, Lord, do you care? And Christian, there's only one thing that you need to look to. Only one thing you need to hold on to when you have that thought. And it's the cross. Jesus went to the cross to die for you. I want you to think about Psalm 69. That's one of the great messianic psalms. And so many references in that psalm where you look at it and you see that's a reference to the cross. But one thing that's pretty easy to overlook is... That entire psalm is dealing with a flood. The waters are coming up. The psalmist is on his tiptoes. He's struggling to get air. Jesus describes the cross as a flood that he has to go into, a storm that he has to go into. It's why later in Mark he describes it as him being baptized with the cross. It's a water experience. And Christian, that's the the same way you're supposed to think about the cross. What happens in baptism? You are baptized into the cross as well. That's what it says with Paul in Romans. You're baptized into the cross. And so when Jesus is in the storm, he is the one who goes through both the storm on the Sea of Galilee, recognizing there is a greater storm to come, the storm of the cross. And what does he go through? He goes through that storm of the cross for you and for your sake he understands that is a storm that he needs to go through. Jesus still has the same heart for his people that he had on the Sea of Galilee that day. It's the same heart. He loves you the same way that he did when he created the world, indeed before he created the world. That's what we mean when we say that God is changeless. It means that when you understand the magnitude of the love of God for you, In Jesus Christ, you can know that that doesn't waver the slightest fraction of an inch for all eternity. It is changeless. And that's something you can hold on to. That's who our Savior is. He is the one who cares for us. As a Christian, there's one final point I want us to talk about today. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus cares for us, but finally... Jesus is who we can trust. Now, if I can tell you this, I've actually kind of tricked you. The reason I've structured my sermon the way it is is because it's one large argument. The first two points build to the third. Jesus is the God-man, and Jesus cares for us. Therefore, we can and should trust in Him. Because only once you understand those first two points does this third point come forth. You know, if I can put it this way, Chris, if you want to trust in Jesus, you cannot possibly trust him without understanding that he is fully God, fully man, and that he cares for you. You cannot properly trust in him without understanding those two things. And that might seem really boring and really logical and just very irritating to you. But why am I making you understand this? It's because when you're going through the middle of a crisis, what do you need? You don't need your emotions. You need to work a gospel logic through your minds to work inside your heart, to work inside your soul so that therefore you can hold on to that. What is a a giant storm in your life, a giant trial? By definition, it means that you're topsy-turvy. You don't know what end is up, what end is down. Your emotions are not what you hold on to. You hold on to the promises of God. And you hold on to those things. And that's what you live your life with. You work your heart. You work those promises deeper and deeper into your heart till your heart starts to sing with the praises of God. That's what you do in the crisis. It's not just blindly trusting emotion, it's relying upon the promises of God. And someone, only someone who, with the power of creation itself, can deal with our storms. And only someone as caring as Jesus can be implicitly trusted to help. You need both of those things to trust in Jesus Christ. And so what, we must, what must we do? We must cast all our cares and all our concerns and worries upon Jesus and depend upon Him moment by moment for all of our lives and for every breath we take. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Now, that seems incredibly easy for us to say. That's something that we as Christians can say together every single Sunday, and we can just throw that out there, and it seems so easy. But the truth is that can be really quite difficult. When you go through the nitty-gritty of your Christian life, you understand that that's the devil's in the details and how that works out. You know, if I can put it this way, there's a difference between what the trust of the disciples looks like in this passage and what the trust that you need to have in Jesus looks like. And yours, if you don't understand that trust, that difference in that trust, you're going to have a very difficult life. The disciples are in this boat, and they should have understood, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is here with us. Not a single one of us is going to die today. Not one of us. This boat isn't going down. We're going to make it to the other side of the Sea of Galilee He's going to the cross. He has this appointment with the cross, and he's going to keep it. The disciples should have understood that. No one was going to die that day. What does our trust in Jesus look like? It's a little different. It's a little more complicated. We don't trust Jesus to keep us from death. We trust Jesus to keep us through death. From versus through We trust God to supply all our needs in this life till our time comes to go. And then we trust us, we trust Him to carry us through death into a blessed eternal life with Him forever. That's what our trust is in. That He will keep us through death itself. Not one of us has a promise from God that we're going to make it through the rest of the day. Not one of us has a promise From God, that we're going to have a perfectly happy life in every single possible way. Indeed, He actually promises us persecution and difficulty. And, Christian, if you just look through history, what is the uncomfortable reality? Christians die, and they die all the time. You know, and the more you're connected to the church and the older you get in life, the more you understand some people die in tragic ways. And what are you supposed to think when you see a fellow Christian's boat? Sink beneath the waves of this life. What are you supposed to sink? think? You're not supposed to think, God, do you care? You're not supposed to think, God, you have been unfaithful. You're supposed to recognize this. God has promised us trials. He's promised us storms. But He's promised to be with us through those storms. And to work all things together, both for His glory and for our good. And so when you see a fellow Christian's boat sink beneath the waves, you're supposed to understand they still made it to Canaan's happy shore on the other side. They, un- they make it. Indeed, they actually take a shortcut. They get there before us. And beloved, when the waves come and they threaten to swallow us, you need to understand there is only one person in this entire world that you can trust and who has the power to say to your soul, Peace. Be still. And it is Jesus, the one who was swallowed up by death and the one who's been through this storm before. The one who is actually in control of the storm the entire time. That's who we need. We need the one who, as the, as the hymn says, the one who plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. That's who we need. We don't know where the path of our lives go. Only God knows that, but we can trust that He will lead us through our lives, through our deaths, and into life eternal with Him forever. Christian, what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to follow Jesus in the path He walked. Jesus went into the storm of the cross. We go into the storm. We take up our crosses and follow Him. And we understand that we follow in the footsteps of Christ. And we know that there will be another side to the storm and that we will be with Him, with Christ in heaven for all eternity. And we will be with Him forevermore. That's who we will be with. And that's what we will enjoy. Christian, I know of no better way than to end with the words of that great hymn. Who is this? Tis the Lord of all creation who this wondrous path has trod. He is God from everlasting into everlasting God. Tis our God, our glorious Savior, who above the starry sky is for us a place preparing where no tear can dim the eye. Tis our God, who lives forever mid the shining ones on high in the glorious golden city reigning everlastingly. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father. Lord, we are thankful for your word. And more than this, we are thankful for Jesus Christ. We are thankful for who he is. We are thankful that he is truly God and truly man. And Lord, I pray for this congregation today. I pray that they would come face to face with this Jesus. And that they would meditate upon him. And that he would find joy this Lord's day, resting in who he is. Lord, help us to find comfort in Christ. Comfort for every affliction. Comfort for every trial. And comfort for death itself. Because Lord, you have taken away the sting of death. In you, there is salvation. And there is nothing else. And Lord, we long for the day when our faith shall be sight. And Lord, give us eyes for that day. Eyes for when we shall gaze upon Jesus. And Lord, and until that day, be with your people. And help us to live as spirit-filled people, pilgrims in this strange land, going on to heaven, to Canaan's happy shore. This we ask in the name of our great and wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Christian, receive now the benediction of God given to you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.